In case you didn't know, uh, the search for life beyond Earth has been much in the news as of as of late. Uh, just last month, that NASA announced that water, liquid water, has in fact, we've got reason to believe, has been in fact found on Mars. Kind of striking. Uh, just last week, in fact, NASA announced that what we believe from what the, the telescopes and the, the uh, probes are telling us, that at one time, many, many, many years ago, there were Mars, the surface of Mars, was teeming with lakes and streams and rivers flowing of, of water as well. And as though that wasn't enough, astronomers revealed to us that the Kepler telescope saw way out there, I forget how many millions of light years this was, so it's not like next door, but picked up from far, far away this star with this really strange flickering pattern. Now, you're wondering, what does that have to do with anything? Well, his, it, what happened was immediately after that, there were some within the astronomer community who said, look, proof of alien life. Because the theory was posited, I'm not making this up, that the re what was causing the flickering of the light were these giant megastructures made by intelligent life out there somewhere around the star, and those megastructures are orbiting that star, you see, therein occasionally obstructing our view of the light, causing, from our perspective, a flickering. I don't know, that seems a stretch to me. It seems desperate. And it may tell us a little bit more about the astronomers and the reporters reporting their discoveries than what they're actually, well, anyway. It tells us something, I think, also about the desperation to know there's someone out there besides us. The interesting thing is we do have a message. A message has been given. We have, we have it, we've received it, that is, in fact, very strange and is, in fact, very alien and otherworldly, so much so that we have to acknowledge that there's just no way it could be merely human in its origin. It had to come from outside us. And you're wondering, well, what museum, what, what think tank, who has that? You have it. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, it's right there before you. We're pressing on in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are a series within a series within a series. We are in the Beatitudes, wrapping up that little mini-series in the Beatitudes, within the Sermon on the Mount, within the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, please do now turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. That's the first of the Gospels that we have, the first of the New Testament books. Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're honing in this morning on verses 10 through 12. Uh, properly speaking, really, verse 10 is the last of the Beatitudes. Verses 11 and 12 are Jesus making a comment on what he has just said as that last Beatitude, pressing home the significance of it just a little bit. Uh, but I'm going to read that said verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1 of Matthew, hear now God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you please uh, give us ears with which to hear? Help us, in, in a sense, to put ourselves there on that hillside there that day with the disciples as they were hearing this. We ask that you would help us to hear this afresh. These are startling words. If we, would, if we can really hear what you're saying and not just um, give it a cursory his, uh, listening, but if we would deeply hear we would have to acknowledge these are just absolutely striking, what you are saying here. And so we need help in hearing, help in understanding, help in accepting, help in embracing, help in living out of these things. And we ask for that now. Oh, Jesus, please be our teacher. Amen. I do want to talk about persecution a bit here. That, that is, the, of course, the theme here of this Beatitude is what Jesus is, is driving at here. And to do that, I want to talk about some examples of it. So first, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the service during the announcements that next week is Reformation Sunday, and we're going to be a special theme of that in the first hour. And the second hour is the life and lessons of, from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, that great English uh, pastor from the 19th century there in London, if you know anything about his life, uh, you would probably then know that he endured intense hostility from the press there in London. That was a day back when the press cared about what preachers were saying and the impact that it was having upon uh, a community. And it got to be so bad that Spurgeon's wife, Susanna, had something framed and hung in their home so that he would see it all the time. And it was these words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you some other examples, maybe a little bit more contemporary. Just a couple weeks ago, a video was released by ISIS. Now, Western media did not cover this. I guess we've gotten bored with it already. Three men wearing orange jumpsuits were made to kneel there in the sand. Three other men wearing desert camouflage and black masks came up behind them, each one with a pistol in their hands, and shot those three men, those three Assyrian Christians, in the head. They had names. They had families. If you're a Christian, those were your brothers. Perhaps some of you know the name Saeed Abedini. Saeed Abedini is an Iranian-American pastor who has just celebrated three years of being in a jail, a, a really ugly place there in Iran, ostensibly being held because he is a threat to national security there in Iran. 
perhaps more names, getting closer to home. Aaron and Melissa Klein, two bakers, their husband and wife team who own a bakery in, in Oregon, who just in the last few weeks have been ordered by the state to pay $135,000 ostensibly in damages because they refused to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Why? Not out of hatred, not out of animosity, not in any way at all, if you know, know their story. Because of their religious convictions. Now what do those, all those, I could, we could go on all day listing off examples through history and contemporary times. What do this, those four incidents, those four cases have in common? Every one of them were, are cases of persecution for faith, for loyalty, for allegiance to Jesus. Every one of those cases are examples of where individuals forego, decided it was time to forego the trinkets of this world because they do not compare with the eternal treasure of heaven. That they deemed the applause and approval of man to be oh so much lighter and the, the worth, not even worth talking about compared to God's eternal approval. It's the last of the Beatitudes in our study here. Uh, an examination of the character of the citizens of heaven, of a disciple of Jesus and what that looks like. It is not, none of these, and especially this one, it is not for us to massage or decide what that looks like. It is up to Jesus, the one we ostensibly are following, to maintain and determine that. Christ has shown us the path for our lives. And what He is making clear in this particular beatitude is a vital integral, essential, non-negotiable part of that is persecution. We need to heed this. We need to heed this. And as we've done over the last several weeks in this series in the Beatitudes, I want to unpack that, drill down on the significance of that. It does beg the question, of course, what would that look like? What does that does that mean to, to really hear and heed what Jesus is saying here? So I want to pursue these three questions. So if you've been a part of this series, you could probably say it in your sleep. Uh, it's been the same three questions over the last seven, now this eighth week in the series of the Beatitudes. First, who is Jesus speaking of here? Secondly, why are they described this way? Why are they said to be blessed? And thirdly, those things being true, how then can they be true of us? Those three questions. So, let's take these in turn. First, who is Jesus speaking of? What is this persecution that he speaks of more specifically? Let's talk about some definitions. Um, this is more than just um, resistance to, a passive resistance to the gospel. This is out, outright opposition and hostility to the gospel. And it is worth noting that there is a spectrum in which that opposition and hostility can, how it can be expressed, not just in extreme ways, but in verbal relational ways as well. And Jesus is certainly making that very clear here. Uh, I should also add this. This is not some persecution for the Christian is never something uh, to be enjoyed, never something to be sought out in and of itself as some sort of 
mean or goal, and it also never comes about, and he makes this clear, it never comes about because of our sin, because of our tactlessness, or because of our foolishness. Let me put it this way, just very, very down to earth. It is not persecution when you get a failing grade in a class because you stayed up too late talking to that sweet young thing about faith and life. You just got what was coming to you. Cause and effect. I'm sorry. When you got fired from your job or got a reprimand from your boss because you kept talking to your coworker about Jesus instead of doing your work, that's not persecution. That's foolishness. Let's be clear as to what Jesus is saying here and why does this come and what are we talking about? What does he say? Verse 10. An explanation of what's behind this persecution. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is to say, embracing the promises of God and living out of those and taking seriously and heeding His commands. Or putting it this way, living out of kingdom values. And even more, he goes further in verse 11 to say it's not just living out of kingdom values, it is out of allegiance and loyalty and love of the king. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And by the way, a little sub, a little, a little well, yes, yeah, sub note here. Um, note the implicit claim to deity Jesus is making here with that statement. Because he's, make, look at the comparison that he's making. The Old Testament prophets were persecuted for their loyalty to God. And Jesus is drawing a parallel. He's saying, you, my disciples, like the prophets of old, are going to be persecuted for your loyalty and your allegiance to whom? To me. He's just assuming they get that. Who he is. And how he thinks of himself. So who is Jesus speaking of here? Those who are persecuted for the king and the kingdom. And as has been the case with every one of these Beatitudes, as you look through these, these eight, and it's no less true here, Jesus, the one who's speaking these words, is the one who manifests them more so than anyone. He is the model of what this looks like. He is the example of what this looks like. And the prophet Isaiah foretold this some seven, eight hundred years beforehand. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, we could read much more than I'm going to, but Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9, when the prophet wrote, He was oppressed, speaking of this one to come, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away, and as for His generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's worth noting here, and it's because certainly Jesus intends for us to see this, the connection between the leader, him, and the followers. It was read earlier in the service from John 15, if the world hates you, 
Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So what does this mean then? It means then the next time that we hear another horrific account or watch another one of these videos produced by ISIS, released by ISIS. The next time that we hear of the trampling of religious freedoms in our own country, the next time you or I are dismissed or scorned or ostracized or insulted in some way because of our love and allegiance for Christ, we ought not to be surprised because of the the fundamental opposition and antagonism between these two kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. Such that the conflict and the collision is inevitable. What should surprise us, my friends, is when we don't hear of those things. And when we don't face those things. That's the exception. That's what Jesus is saying here. So real is the hostility and the opposition between these two kingdoms. Christ is showing us this path. Oh, that we would heed Him. And hear what He is saying. Alright, well that takes us to the second question. Why then are these people described this way? Why are they said to be blessed? Now here i got to come back to the clarification that I kept pounding over the last seven weeks as to what that word means. Remember how Jesus uses that word in terms of what it is to be blessed is the the people that he is saying that we should admire, that we should envy, that we should imitate and emulate. Those whom we would want to be like. And he's applying it, you understand, not just to the first seven Beatitudes, but equally so to this eighth one as well. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. How can that be? Partially because of the reward. The reward. Let me keep reading. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This, now this is a reward. This reward, though, in this case, it's not the way we think of rewards, right? This is a reward that is not earned, but is given. It's been earned by another and given by him to us granted to us but never earned by us. God owes us nothing. And it is given, this, this reward is given to those who from the world's perspective seem nothing but just beaten down. And maybe even beaten down under the, under the heel of the world itself. But that's not it at all. They are being lifted up. Appearances are very deceiving. In fact, you see something of that theme, this, this, this flip of, the, of the, the values of the world in our own hearts all through these Beatitudes. 
It just comes out so much clear, so clearly here. Their greatness defies all appearances. So it's because of this reward, and it's reflected in their response. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but, but note how what Jesus says. The response that comes from the person who, who knows of themselves to this to be, to be true. It's not the response of, of the per, to the persecution is not as you and I would. It's certainly not as I would. It's, it's not sulking. It's not retreating. It's not retaliating. It's rejoicing. In fact, literally the Greek is, is this way. Rejoice and leap exceedingly in response to the persecution that you are receiving for Christ's sake. As you look back, as you look back and understand the glorious legacy of which you are a part, you're listed with the prophets. This is the treatment, the kind of treatment that they received, and you are receiving the same thing. As you come to understand the, the badge of authenticity that your faith has now received, as you look forward to an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs the passing, temporal, fleeting pain you are now experiencing, hold to that. Hold to that. Know that and rejoice. You have so much more than you think. Rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Why are the persecuted for righteousness' sake? Why are there those who are persecuted in Jesus' name described as being blessed because of the reward? And it comes out in their response. And again, this is part of a composite whole. This is not like going out to uh, some cafeteria-style restaurant and you can just pick and choose what you want. It doesn't work like this. These eight are a package deal of what it is to follow Jesus. And you can't just pull one out and think that's okay. On the very site where likely Jesus first spoke these words, there in Galilee, the northwest corner, if you're looking at a map, it's in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, just a, a, a little ways from Capernaum, there is a hill. And likely on that hillside is where Jesus spoke these very words. And on the top of that hill is a church called the, very creative name, the Church of the Beatitudes. It's only about 100 years old. It was built 100 years ago on the site of the ruins of a church that dates back to at least the 300s. That church is made with an octagonal floor plan. Might be interesting for phase two. We could try that, right? <laughs> an octagonal floor plan. Why? Each wall represents one of the Beatitudes. Now, I'm no architect, and I have no expertise in this, but I do know this. At the very least, you would do great cosmetic damage if you ripped out wall eight. And you might even cause the whole thing to come down to the ground. It's the same with this. It's the same with the Beatitudes themselves. 
It is a composite whole that we don't get to pick from as much perhaps as we would like to. Jesus says, blessed are those, blessed, to be admired, to be envied, to be imitated, to be emulated, to be looked up to. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How can this be so? Because their faithfulness has been confirmed. In the best possible sense, their faith has provoked a response from the world. And therein, their faithfulness has been confirmed. They are, in fact, followers of Jesus. Because they elicited that kind of response. Their faithfulness has been confirmed. And their faith has been tested and proven true. Tested in the, in the fire. Shown for what it is to be sure and real. And not just words spoken in the comfort of environs like this. But real. Really real. Christ is showing us this path. And the path includes persecution. We need to take heed to what He is saying. Okay, but that then takes us to the last question. Those things being true, how then can they be true of us? Especially in our, in our context, as, as we think as people who live in the 21st century West. And we're wrestling with how do we grapple with, how do we understand, how do we, how do we, how do we come to, to think about reports and videos and of, of, of terrible things happening to overseas to our brothers and sisters in Christ and even things happening in our own country and the shifts of the, the, the lay of the land and the, the, you just don't know exactly where things are. Where are things going to be for our children, for that matter? And our children's children here even in the United States. And we're thinking about that. We're wondering about that. And then the things that we ourselves might even face in, in the kinds of things that Jesus is saying about, you know, in terms of being reviled and having things evil spoken of you and perhaps even false things spoken of you. How, what do we do? I'm going to give you three suggestions. Three. <laughs> three suggestions. First, we need to get sobered up. It's time to wake up and get sober. We, when we hear of these kind of things and perhaps even come on the receiving end of these kinds of things, we get angry, we get fearful, and we get discouraged. We need to call out the myth for what it is. The myth of the good old days, which is a lie. It never was. We need to, to, to stop hearkening back to this extreme mythology, this fanciful fairy tale that goes like this. There was a day in our country, you know, when everything was right. And now everything's wrong. It's just a lie. You know, the, the, we, we, we need to call out the myth and actually read our history, folks. The, the very beginning, going back to the, the, the earliest days of church history, every stage, every stage, in every place that the gospel of Christ has ever gone, hostility, Opposition, persecution came with it. We need to wake up. We need to wake up and get sobered up. That's the first thing. The second is this, to check our vision. 
that the, the values that which, by which we live by would be reoriented, that which we deem to be worth living for and dying for and sacrificing for. How do you do that? You begin by hearing the good news. Hearing the good news and actually appropriating it for ourselves. The good news being this, according to Matthew's Gospel, according to Jesus Himself, the good news, the Gospel of the Kingdom, which paraphrase goes like this, the King has come. And He is coming again. And things as they are, as you are accustomed to them being, are not, for goodness sake, how they were supposed to be. And praise God, they are not how they forever will be. And that's good news. So we hear that, we embrace that, we appropriate that to ourselves, and then we act out of that, like the early church did. You know, that's what sustained them. How else do you explain the staying power of the church in all the opposition and the hostility and the persecution as they heard Matthew's gospel in those, from those earliest days and it helped them, it sustained them in the beatings and the stonings and the mockings, and the insults, and the slander, and the ostracism, and the, the interrogations, and the threats, and the imprisonments, and the executions. This is what sustained them. Seeing, knowing that the, there was an eternal weight of glory that made those things so little by comparison. And so they stood. Get sobered up. Check our vision. And open up our hearts. And by that I mean this. To be willing and prepared, ready, quickly, to love and serve our persecutors. If we, to the extent that we live this way, we will be noticed. So expect to be noticed. And more, more specifically, in, in our text, the Christianity, by the way, the Christian gospel, living it out, this, this countercultural way, has rightly been described oftentimes as a wisdom test. And the wisdom test goes like this. And I'll just use a specific example. To the extent that we live according to what the Bible says when it comes to sex and relationships, that will get the world's attention. We will be noticed. It will stand out especially to the extent that we live that way and live in community and serve the larger community around us. Now that will come into play down the road when those in our, around us who decide to go their own way and discover that doesn't work so well and their lives are broken and shattered and they've been burned by the promises that they were given. That this, is the, this, this living according to my pleasures is the way to go. And then they will be looking for a place to be healed. They will be looking for some means by which to have their lives put back together and someone to love them. Where will they go in that moment? They will go to the people that they knew who loved them before and who were willing to speak kindly and compassionately and warning them about what they were doing but were ready to receive them. That needs to be us. Open our hearts. Open our hearts. Now, I realize this is completely otherworldly. 
I realize that this is an utter reversal of all the world's standards as well as the inclinations of your heart and mine. I know that. I know that. And I know that this is impossible to live this way, which is why I'm going to say this one more time in this series of the Beatitudes, because it's the last time. How do you do this? You trace back through the path. And you start at the beginning where Jesus does, reckoning with our spiritual poverty before God and working it out from there. That's where you have to begin. That's where we have to begin. He is showing us this path, this way ahead. Oh, that we would heed. I I assume you, you struggle with something like this as I do, the desire to be liked. And that's fine, so long as it doesn't become a goal. So long as it doesn't become what you live for. It's okay to be liked. Don't let that be what drives you, what what you're all about. Because the reality is being popular and being high in the poll numbers is a very slippery thing. It can betray you and also prove to be a trap. Jesus is telling us here that If we're to follow Him, we have to be ready to suffer for His name's sake. You've got your quotes and notes. I want to take you to this last quote by by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor. He was a theologian. He was a spy. You could even make a case something of a prophet. Bonhoeffer, perhaps more so than... Very few, most others, he was on a short list of those that you could say in the 20th century, was just absolutely rock-solid, steadfast in standing for Christ against a wave of opposition. Um, Over the course of years in Germany, standing against the tide of the rise of the Nazi party and knowing full well what it may cost him in terms of Uh, impossible imprisonment or torture or putting his own family in danger or maybe even his own death. Well, that's actually what happened. In 1945, he was executed by hanging under the direct orders of Heinrich Himmler. April 1945, just days before the Flossenburg concentration camp was freed by the Allies. Days. But that was completely in accord with what Bonhoeffer taught and wrote about. And that's where this quote comes into play from uh, one of his most famous works, The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to what he says. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means passio passiva, suffering because we have to suffer. That is why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who, quote, are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Now, Bonhoeffer is tough to read sometimes. Um, He'll stretch you. Now, part of that's just simply because he, he wrote in German, it's being translated into English, and you've got some issues there. There's another issue, and that is just um, the, the, there's the cultural differences between there and 
here. There's also the contextual differences in terms of his, history and geography. But that's not it. That's not the only thing that makes Bonhoeffer's writing a stretch for us. I mean, I want to read these last two sentences again. And you ask me, excuse me, you tell me, is, does this sound like it's of this world? The sentiments, the truths that he is articulating here? Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of His grace. My friends, does, not, does that not sound alien or otherworldly? Of course it does. No wonder it stretches us. But the reason it stretches, the reason it sounds so foreign to our ears is because it is absolutely consistent with what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that He would give us ears to hear this and the ability to really, really, really heed it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would You please help us here? We are just barely, we barely, barely have ears to hear the other seven in these Beatitudes. And I don't know that if we were really hearing those, if we actually would listen. But this one, Oh, would you get our expectations right? When our expectations are skewed, whether it's with marriage or parenting or a job or schooling or any journey that we would go on, we are just setting ourselves up for disappointments and disillusionment. And how much more so in the Christian life? And we plead with you to straighten out our expectations. All of us here, whether we are seeking and wrestling with whether or not Christianity is even true, or we are deeply wrestling with our faith and wondering if we can go on, or perhaps it's all settled, we're okay in a way, but oh, does this need to be pressed in us a bit more deeply. May we truly be able to say with all hearts conviction, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.